Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. We jump in today to what I consider to be an incredible psalm. Not that they aren't all wonderful, but this one is particularly great in my opinion, and it's uh, much more to my liking than the love song from last week in Psalm 45. We have been working our way kind of randomly or haphazardly through some of the psalms, and this one, in my mind, stands out above the rest. It does so because it epitomizes what the psalms are known for, comforting, encouraging songs and poems about the wonder of our glorious God. There is encouragement found in the psalms like nowhere else. Even within the Word of God, there is greater encouragement in the Psalms, for myself anyways, and in this Psalm particularly. And you can hear the encouragement from this Psalm just in the title of the message alone that I've titled it, which is, God is your abundantly available help. God is your abundantly available help. That is taken from verse 1. There in verse 1 in the New King James, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble, and in the footnotes of my Bible, it says that very present help can literally be translated, God is your abundantly available help. That should be all that some of us need to hear. God is your abundantly available help. It is a sermon in a nutshell. But there is much more that can be said from this, so we are going to go a little bit further. Just so we have some context for Psalm 46, I have actually spoken briefly, I think it was actually at the church camp out last year, we looked at Psalm 46 briefly, um, but it's right in order here and I love it, so we're going to look at it again. But for some context here, I'll give you a little bit of background, there's not a lot that's known about the point or event or time frame that it is written about specifically, it's nothing recorded within it that says this is what it's about. It is written by the sons of Korah, we've looked at that, they were musicians and songwriters, poets of the congregation of Israel. Uh, Most of the Psalms by the sons of Korah are believed to have been written after the life of David, uh, but that only helps us a little bit with setting context for Psalm 46. But one of the details that provides some context, at least in many people's minds, is the degree of victory which is being spoken of in Psalm 46. The description of the power and strength and intervention of God here in Psalm 46 is absolutely awesome. And the event which the people of God were delivered from was monumental. Now, there aren't many huge victories for Israel in the time frame that this was possibly written. But there is one situation that clearly fits that. It was the deliverance of Israel from the invading armies of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. That conflict and God's intervention can be found in Isaiah chapter 36 and chapter 37. And I would encourage you, if you have some time later today, to read over that and see how God delivered them. But I'll just touch on it briefly for context of Psalm 46. In Isaiah 36 and 37, we see Sennacherib's armies have conquered all of Judah, as well as all of the surrounding countries. They have swept like a horde across an entire land, and they have finally come to Jerusalem. And there at the gates of Jerusalem, they challenge Hezekiah to war. They threaten him and all the Israelites. They mock them, They slander God. They even try to turn the people of Israel against Hezekiah and against God and force Hezekiah, by popular opinion, to surrender. So that is the scenario where Sennacherib comes against Israel. And Hezekiah, in that situation, sends his servant to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah goes to God. And Isaiah hears from God. And God responds to Hezekiah in this manner, in Isaiah chapter 36, verse 6 and 7. 
Thus you shall say to your master, that being Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. That's God's response when his name is blasphemed and when his children are threatened here. Notice that God responds. God responds to blasphemy against himself. It's one thing that a nation would rise up against a child of God, but another thing entirely to challenge God himself. And so God responds. And as God promised, so he accomplishes. You see later on in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 that God sends an angel of the Lord into the camp of the Assyrians and kills 185,000 warriors. Then when Sennacherib returns to Assyria in defeat, his own sons rise up and they kill him with a sword while he is worshiping his god Nisroch. Talk about irony. It just goes to show that it is never wise to blaspheme or to mock God. But place yourself in the position of the Israelites, which is what Psalm 46 is being expressed from. Place yourself in their position at the point where the armies of the king of Assyria are gathered against you, hundreds of thousands of them. They have conquered every fortified city of Judah. All the rest of the cities in your country are destroyed. And now they are gathered here en masse, and they have a reputation. Not only have they conquered Judah, but they have marched across swaths of other lands. They are the superpower of the day, and they are here at your gates to destroy you. They have jeered you. They have mocked you. They have ridiculed you. They have the upper hand. You really are nothing before them. Yet God intervenes. And we see Psalm 46. God intervenes in might and power. He doesn't even intervene by equipping you to resist them or by strengthening you. God here intervenes by destroying the opposition. 185,000 of them slaughtered. And the king of the enemy killed by his own sons. God is your abundantly available help. So with that context in mind, let's read Psalm 46. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is quick and powerful, that it pierces between the thoughts and intents of our heart. And Lord, we submit to you and we would ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would accomplish that this morning. That you would convict us where we need convicting and lift us and encourage us where we need that. We thank you that you meet each of us individually where we're at. And you know the condition, the standing of our heart. You know our needs, even if we are unable to express them. We thank you that you are abundantly available to intervene and to help. Come and accomplish your purpose by your word in us this morning. And grant us hearts and ears that are receptive and a will to follow you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To the chief musician, a psalm. Of the sons of Korah, a song for Almoth. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob 
is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen. You may notice as we read that, that the chapter breaks down quite straightforwardly, in some versions at least, into three different stanzas. And each stanza is followed by a rest or a pause for contemplation in the New King James Version and the American Standard Version. It is marked by the word sila, which literally means pause. Two of the three sections end before that pause with this statement, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. It's actually thought that the first stanza from verse 1 to 3 also ended with that statement, but it was dropped as a clerical error in translation. Regardless, the psalm breaks down very straightforward, very simply, very easily for us as far as themes or structure. Verse 1 to 3, verse 4 to 7, and verse 8 to 11. Now taking out of the Old Testament scenario, whatever that was, and I want to take it and apply it to today. So I have captioned those three points or those three breakdowns as this. In verse 1 to 3, God is my security, even when the world has gone mad. Point 2 in verse 4 to 7, God is my peace, even when the enemy attacks. And point 3, verse 8 to 11, God is my hope, even when all around is hopeless. So the first point, God is my security. God is my security even when the world has gone mad, and that we can relate to. The psalmist starts off with this beautiful statement of confidence. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I don't think that needs a lot of explaining. Refuge is where you flee in times of trouble. In the time that this was written, you probably had the mind of a cave or of a tall tower made out of rock. It was a place of safety and security. Perhaps today we would use the illustration of a safe room where God is my bomb shelter in times of trouble. It's something that's solid and indestructible. God is our refuge. God is also our strength. We don't just flee to him and shelter in his embrace, though sometimes that's necessary, but in his embrace we are strengthened to face whatever it is that is coming our way. He secures us, but he also strengthens us and enables us for that difficulty. God is our refuge and strength. Then it goes on and says, a very present help in trouble. The NIV expresses it a little clearer when it says, God is an ever-present help in trouble. He is always there, and he is right there. He is not off wandering somewhere. He is not needing to be found. He is not distant from us. He is not aloof from us. He is here, now, always an ever-present help in time of trouble. So we will not fear. It's an inclusive statement. Therefore, we will not fear. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We will not fear. We need not fear because he is our refuge and strength, a present help in trouble. So we will not He says, we will not fear, even though, in verse 2, and though, in verse 2, though, in verse 3, and though, in verse 3. Four times. The psalmist says, we will not fear. Though this may happen, or this might happen, we will not fear. 
though this other thing may happen and this huge calamity may happen, we will not fear. And the reasons that are listed here why we might fear but won't are pretty impressive. Basically, he says, though everything implode and fall to pieces, we will not fear. In verse 2 and 3, it is the physical world that is falling apart. And that may literally mean the physical world, though the very ground beneath us is falling apart and the earth is being destroyed and the mountains vanish and the storms crash and the floods rise. We will not fear for our hope is in God. Our strength is in God. Our refuge is God. God is greater than these troubles. It may also refer, and some believe it to refer, to powers, to nations, to established rule, society. Though all of that may fall, though nations may fall, though governments may fall, though kings may fall, though civilization may be shattered and in ruin, we will not fear. For God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Either way, whether it's referring to the physical world or those governing powers and authorities, the idea is that the very foundation upon which our lives exist is disintegrating, and in the midst of that, we will not fear. Israel experienced that reality. They had opportunity to fear. Everything that they knew to be good and worthwhile was threatened. Every other nation had been defeated The inhabitants killed or enslaved, but we have a God who is bigger than any situation, so we will not fear. Some of you this morning feel like your life has been shaken up and battered. You're not sure which end is up anymore or how you can maintain yourself any longer. It is easy to get caught up in the insanity that is taking place in the world today. It really is. It is easy today to be fearful. I'm not that old, but I've lived through a a few chaotic moments in my life, but nothing seems to have been as sustained or as volatile as the days in which we live today. It is. It's chaos in the world. That's why I said, even when the world has gone mad, my security is in God, therefore I will not fear. It feels in the world today like someone has cut the very things that underpin and stabilize society. Perhaps that's where you're at this morning. I want to remind you that God is your refuge and strength, a very, a very, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even when the world goes mad, we need not fear, for God is our security. And it does feel like the world's gone mad, so I am glad my security is in Him. Whatever happens, it isn't shaking God, so it isn't shaking me, because I am in Him. God is my security. In verse 4 to 7, we see that God is my peace even when the enemy attacks. There's an amazing transition between verse 3 and verse 4. He's just saying, even though, and even though, and even though, and even though, all of this calamity is happening. And then it goes in verse 4 and says, There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. He goes from waters roaring and mountains shaking to a river whose streams make the inhabitants of the city of God glad. One extreme to the other, both using the illustration of water. One in chaos and destruction, while the other is satisfaction and contentment in God. The river here presents a picture of calm and surety. It is a steady flowing river, providing all that is necessary for the sustenance of his people. In the midst of a battle where you are surrounded on every side, you need a secure provision of water. You need that stability. You need that provision. But Jerusalem, unlike the vast majority of ancient cities, wasn't situated on a river. So then what is this calm? What is this assuring and providing river? 
Well, verse 4 goes on to describe this river by saying, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High God. It is the very presence of God. Remembering in the Old Testament period, the dwelling place of God among men was the tabernacle. That was where God dwelt. That is why it continues to say, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God was in the midst of his people. God was right there in the middle of Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies, even as the enemy was at the gate. So Jerusalem was secure. Jerusalem would not be moved. God would protect his people and provide for his people and nourish his people by his very presence, that ever-present help in time of trouble. And that provision of his presence has the calming effect as of a river, feeding everywhere that it touches through all its various streams and channels. Child of God, by grace through faith, if you know him as Lord and Savior, you have the abiding presence of God in your life. You have been indwelt by his Spirit. You have been sealed until that eternal day dawns. You have the life of Christ within you, which as the woman at the well heard is eternal and all satisfying. Whoever drinks of that water, Jesus said, that I shall give them shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus Christ is that river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. If we go back to the physical illustration of Israel, you're surrounded by enemies. They're ready to tear down the gates of Jerusalem. Or maybe you're surrounded by enemies and you feel like they're ready to tear down the gates of your life. But you have an ever-present source of peace. So you will not be moved. You have that steady flowing presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords within you. He is in the midst of you by grace through faith. And what happens outside of the inner peace that the presence of God brings? Well, frankly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how hard they bang on the gates. It shouldn't phase us. The nations raged here, it says. The kingdoms were moved. But God is greater and His presence drives out fear or anxiety, or worry. His presence drives out that fretting and stressing about the chaos in the world. Because when he moves, when he speaks, or as verse 6 says, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. Aren't Aren't the nations raging today? Isn't there upheaval in the world at large? There's chaos and confusion. There's opposition to the things of God and the people of God. But God is far greater. He is infinitely greater than all of mankind in all of their raging. If the anger of mankind against their creator wasn't so sad, it would be laughable. Like ants angry at an elephant. Even that illustration fails to draw out the ridiculousness of the situation. Like pieces of art angry at the painter. However you want to envision it, it is absolutely insane that mankind would rage against God, and yet they do. But we rest. We rest at peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so at peace, even in the chaos of the pent-up temper tantrum that the world is expressing towards God. We rest because our God is sovereign. He is in control. He is at the center, in the midst of us. And He has only to utter the word. And all that is created would melt. He spoke. He uttered 
and things are accomplished. He is a God of power and of might. And so we are his children at peace. And one day God will. God will utter. In times past, God destroyed the world by water. One day he will destroy it by fire. He will speak and melt the earth to cleanse it and renew it, to refashion it in purity and holiness. That is the God we serve. He is able. That is the God we are secure in. That is the God who is our eternal source of peace. Child of God, by grace through faith, you have nothing to fear and nothing to disturb you, even though the nations rage and the kingdoms are moved. Our sovereign, all-powerful God is with you. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I'm going to leave it there. I would like to go on, and next week we will look at that phrase, the God of hosts, or the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. It's an incredible phrase. If you have some time this week, after you've done reading Isaiah 36 and 37, look into what those two phrases mean. God of hosts, and then the God of Jacob. We'll examine that next week. But for this week, I pray that you would be encouraged that you would know that in the midst of whatever the world is throwing at you, whatever the world may throw at you in the coming days, that your security is not in the world, and that no matter how distracting it may be, the chaos in the world, no matter how much we may be inclined to, to pursue the philosophies and ways and things of the world, no matter how much it even tickles our fancy as far as we want to find out what's happening and be involved in it, That's not where your security is, but that your security is in Jesus Christ and your peace is in Jesus Christ. When all goes crazy in the world, turn to Him, trust in Him, find your security in Him. When you are threatened with having a disturbed spirit, being anxious or fretting, turn to Him and find that there is peace in Him. It is good that we have a God who's a God of peace, and that peace passes all understanding. So I pray from Psalm 46 that you would be encouraged with that this morning. God is, God is today our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the way that you miraculously intervened in this Old Testament example. We thank you that your arm is not shortened, that it cannot move and accomplish as you accomplished then that you are the same God in power and in authority and in all of your rights, that it belongs to you, that this, all that has been created is yours. And Lord, we ask that you would move in might and power again in the miraculous way that we would see your hand of power unquestionably questionably, and undeniably. And so it could go from that theoretical of saying, yes, we trust because we have seen and we have heard what you have done in the past, to look what the Lord has done today. And I pray that that would be a witness and a testimony to those around, that there would be this turning from their anger against you to an adoration of you and a desire to be right with you. God, I pray that you would make us into that witness of security and peace in Jesus Christ. That witness would be such a testimony as well to those around that they would would wonder, they would ask the reason of the hope that we have, the reason of the peace that we have, the reason of the security that we have, that when all is falling apart, we rest in Jesus Christ. 
and give us boldness and confidence to quickly and clearly proclaim the, the glories of who you are and what you have done. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.